Law, Policy, and Markets. And actually, I think this crisis presents maybe a unique opportunity for big tech companies to demonstrate the value they provide to consumers and other stakeholders every day. Welcome to Millbank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Fiona Schaefer, partner in Millbank's antitrust group based in New York. Let's get to it. Hi, Fiona. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. The world seems to be changing completely with COVID-19. For most of us, collaboration is a good thing, but I know that for an antitrust lawyer, perhaps collaboration is, at least among competitors, is not always so welcome. Are you seeing examples of how that might be changing? Absolutely, Alan, and it's good to hear your voice. In the past fortnight, we've seen collaborations between competitors and industry participants in all sorts of industries, ranging from airlines in Norway to supermarkets in the UK to ferry operators on the Isle of Skye to medical providers and suppliers in the US who have been collaborating to bring essential medicines and PPE equipment to patients and nurses. So when it crosses different sectors, what specific kinds of collaborations are you seeing the regulators encourage more than they would have before? The core collaboration that competitors and industry participants are being encouraged to operate relate to direct responses to COVID-19, bringing essential medical equipment and supplies to the populations that need them. But other collaborations we're seeing that are a result of COVID-19, but not necessarily directly responsive, are being put together to mitigate the devastating economic impact we're seeing from this pandemic. Some of the things we're advising on, Alan, include things like companies combining their purchases to ensure they get continuity of supply and maintain lower costs for those inputs, sharing storage facilities so they're reducing costs of mothballing unused assets, sharing logistics and distribution resources to reduce costs and increase coverage to more customers, and even labor sharing arrangements where one employer will allow employees who aren't able to go to work and can't work from home to work in other establishments where essential businesses are still operating. Labor. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Labor sharing and and collaboration among employers, obviously, is a very sensitive area. Are you seeing employers allowed now to collaborate with each other about employee information? And what kinds of information are they now able to share? That's a great question, Alan. And a lot of the questions I'm fielding at the moment have to do with employers trying to better understand what information they're allowed to share and what information could be risky to share from an antitrust perspective. Obviously, there are a range of novel employee and HR-related issues that employers are dealing with in response to this crisis. The good news is that from an antitrust perspective, there really is no issue with sharing information or best practices on matters that have to do with employee health and well-being and safety, how folks are communicating with their employees, what technologies they're using, how they're facilitating work from home arrangements, testing and screening employees, the use of PPE and other best practices to maintain safe work environments. That all sounds very practical. I'm glad. I'm sure antitrust authorities are not throwing away the entire rulebook. I'm sure they cannot, for example, tolerate cartels or price gouging and the like. What are the limits that employers or companies now generally still have to be mindful of? 
Well, there are a range of topics that you still need to handle with care, even in the COVID environment, Alan. Just as you wouldn't share non-public information about your current or future production or pricing or product launch plans with a competitor, you also shouldn't, even in this time, uh, be sharing non-public information on what you're planning to do with employee compensation or benefits or plans around furloughing or laying off employees. Those kinds of hiring and firing decisions and comp and benefits decisions are competitively sensitive and shouldn't be the subject of of sharing of information among employers. That said, there are sometimes ways to structure information sharing surveys and the like and benchmarking in a way that mitigates antitrust risk. And some of the tools that we use there include things like ensuring you have a sufficient number of participants in the information sharing collaboration, as well as anonymizing and aggregating the results before disseminating them. Good. So so just a practical question, Fiona. A client calls, imagine you pick up the phone, they want to do a merger or they're a distressed company and they need to file for review of their transaction. Are the antitrust agencies still open for business? short answer is that virtually all of them are still open for business, but some are, fair to say, more receptive to new business than others. For example, in the US, the agencies are routinely accepting Hart-Scott-Rodino filings now purely on an electronic basis. They are also entertaining requests to early terminate the HSR waiting period. But the EU, on the other hand, has taken a somewhat different approach. The Commission in Brussels And some member states have specifically asked merging parties to hold off submitting their merger filings and only submit urgent filings for urgent transactions. Some authorities, as of now, have shut down altogether. Colombia is one example. If you are a party to a a transaction that's in the early stages, one thing you should bear in mind right now is that merger reviews on average, are taking longer. So if you're negotiating a transaction where you expect to get some level of antitrust scrutiny, you definitely should build an additional time in your agreement for the merger approval process to be completed. Just to be clear, though, you'd recommend that in the M&A space, if we're you know, drafting the CPs or conditions precedent in a, in a purchase and sale agreement, that we should include extra time for HSR or merger review. How much time these days should we add? Yes, you may need to add a few months to your outside date, for example. What about distressed transactions? Are they being dealt with differently? Parties to distressed transactions uh, should be comforted by the fact that the antitrust agencies will always do their best to review their deals expeditiously. And in, in some jurisdictions like the U.S., there is a specific shorter timeline. It's a 15 calendar day timeline for transactions in bankruptcy. But if your deal, even if it's in bankruptcy or distress, involves significant business overlap that in normal times would attract antitrust scrutiny and perhaps concerns, you should expect the same level of scrutiny and indeed a longer review period to see if those concerns can be resolved without further action. And if your deal does require some kind of remedy to get through the antitrust agencies, you should be prepared for even greater scrutiny of the financial position of prospective buyers if you are having to make divestitures. The financial viability of your divestiture purchaser is one element that I know the agencies are keenly focused on right now. 
they don't want to see any crisis era divestitures fall over because the buyer didn't have sufficient economic backup to make it successful. Let's take a step back. Recessions do not treat companies all the same. Some companies are smaller and more vulnerable. They may be facing demand shocks, supply chain interruptions, challenges with volatile commodity pricing. Other companies, many of them quite large, may actually boost their market concentration and may have the capital structure or benefit from government assistance in order to continue and make it to the other side, to the new normal. Fiona, are the antitrust agencies becoming more sympathetic to arguments that firms need to merge in order to survive in this more concentrated market, even if they're already quite large? That's a great question, Alan. As you probably know, historically, convincing the antitrust agencies to let an anti-competitive merger through because one of or both of the firms needs to merge to survive has been a real uphill challenge. The so-called failing firm defense sets a very high bar for those kinds of arguments. Essentially, the target has to demonstrate that it's in danger of imminent business failure. It can't reorganize successfully in bankruptcy, and there's really no one else out there that wants to buy it that would be a less anti-competitive merger partner. That kind of argument is very rarely successful, and I don't expect that outcome to change after this current crisis. But look, that said, the antitrust agencies are also real people. They get, as they did in the global financial crisis and many market recessions before it, that these kinds of economic shocks affect companies' standalone prospects, and that for some, a merger may provide the best and, in fact, the only path to survive and better meet their customers' needs. So Fiona, if you're advising a Millbank client, which is going through an antitrust review, and this is probably not unique just to today's environment, but you're talking more broadly with concerns like those that might arise. My philosophy, and this, this applies whether we're talking good times or bad, is that whenever you're contemplating a strategic merger that's going to involve some degree of antitrust scrutiny, you need to understand before you show up at the antitrust agency, how will this combination benefit your customers? Not just how it will benefit your shareholders or your management, but how will it benefit the broad the stakeholders that you serve, and most importantly, your customers. I always encourage clients to think about this question in the boardroom before the merger is signed and notified. What are the benefits that the combination will bring in terms of accelerating R&D, bringing new and improved products to market, maybe offering a broader portfolio of products, more efficient distribution, and so on? These are the kinds of questions that the antitrust agencies are going to ask you. And you need to have the answers before you sign the deal, not still be trying to figure them out as you're in the, in the lawyer's office preparing for the first meeting with the antitrust agency. That's interesting. I noticed you made a distinction between the impact on customers and the impact on other stakeholders, which could include, I suppose, vendors or uh, employees, suppliers, uh, not just uh, management or shareholders or others. And I know there are trends in the antitrust market more broadly, especially in Europe with recent proceedings, but also perhaps in the United States, to use the antitrust laws to kind of rein in big tech companies, either with respect to data uh, or privacy or allegedly abusing their market power with respect to advertisers on their platforms uh, and so forth. Are these kinds of trends being impeded or encouraged by the current challenging situation? And, and where do you see those longer term, you know, kind of cutting edge trends shaking out? 
I think there is a, a broad trend towards recognizing the impact of consolidation and of companies that have market power, not just on the consumer side, but also on the producer side or the supplier side or even the employee side. So there is a more holistic philosophy that is emerging in the US and in Europe about how our business transactions and combinations impact all stakeholders. That said, I do think that the tech inquiries, of which there are currently many in numerous jurisdictions around the world, ultimately, I suspect, although there are a number of radical proposals for quite extensive regulation of tech platforms and the like, ultimately, I predict that most of these investigations will conclude that existing antitrust tools and prohibitions that focus on consumer welfare are adequate to address concerns about big tech practices. And actually, I think this crisis presents maybe a unique opportunity for big tech companies to demonstrate the value they provide to consumers and other stakeholders every day. And just as you're sitting at your computer and I am, Alan, we are reminded every day how much we rely on big tech in this environment to search for information, to get deliveries of essential products, to connect us socially and at work. And to the extent that big tech can demonstrate this value while showing they can operate fairly, efficiently and competitively, this could be a good crisis for them. I think that's true. If you look at home delivery of groceries, you look at the reliance that we all have now working remotely on the Internet and the platforms uh, that are on it, uh, it would be much harder to imagine organizations like ours or our clients in the kind of the knowledge economy functioning this seamlessly without those sorts of technology platforms that are now becoming really part of our daily existence. I want to step back, though, because in a crisis... It's normal. We all see what's right in front of our face and we have a harder time perhaps looking up around the curve at what's coming. We have some clients in my energy and infrastructure practice who are still closing deals based on really solid long term fundamentals, notwithstanding the current challenges. Uh, to bank cost of capital and the rest. We have other clients of the firm, of course, who are really looking at disruptions to labor and supply chains, to challenges in the credit markets, difficulties setting asset valuations, both in private and public markets. And I think for them, it's a much more challenging situation in the near term. But at the end of the day, six months, a year from now, there will be a new normal. For you and for your clients in the antitrust space, what does that new normal look like? And what new issues do you expect your clients to be asking you a year from now? Well, what I'm excited about, Alan, is that right now, this is a time when businesses are having the opportunity to think really creatively about how they can collaborate to overcome the current challenges we're facing and continue to meet customers and suppliers' needs. Right now, the agencies are giving a wide berth to these kinds of collaborations, as long as they are shown to benefit customers and consumers. But fast forward six months from now, some of these collaborations that are being okayed by the antitrust agencies or simply being implemented with advice from counsel. I think the question will be whether there is still a justification for some of those to continue when times improve. If I were operating one of these COVID-driven collaborations, one thing I would be focused on right now is 
to collect and maintain data that demonstrates the tangible value that this collaboration is providing to your customers and other stakeholders, while at the same time demonstrating that the absence of the collaboration, its retirement, could in fact be suboptimal from your customer's perspective. So these crisis collaborations you know, may become more permanent if we can show that there is a real competitive, pro-competitive justification. We make a really good point. I want to pivot a little bit to policy, if we, if we could, here at the end, because I know you're very active, Fiona, in, in uh, the ABA and other uh, you know, top-level bar committees. Is the COVID crisis going to stimulate any new policy directions, do you think, or new debates in any particular antitrust areas? I think it's going to stimulate a lot of policy debates. One I'm particularly focused on as I've been thinking about and seeing how agencies, not just antitrust agencies, but healthcare agencies have been dealing with this crisis is what is the appropriate balance between individual privacy rights and public good, in particular, the need to ensure public health and welfare. I think it's fair to say in recent years, the pendulum has swung very much in favor of protecting individual rights to privacy, sometimes at the expense of competing policy goals. In my field, for example, privacy rights have made it more difficult to conduct antitrust audits and internal investigations. We could also see how the use of data in this current crisis, including tracking of COVID patients and other testing and monitoring techniques to try to slow the spread of this pandemic, may cause some rethinking about whether we actually have struck the appropriate balance between private rights and public health and safety concerns. I'm looking forward to contributing to that debate. That is a tricky balancing act indeed. We're going to have to leave it there. Fiona, thank you so much. I know you're busy. I really appreciate you taking the time today to share what's happening in your area. Oh, it's great to talk to you as always, Alan. Thank you for joining us for another Millbank Conversation. We trust you find our expertise and insights compelling. Learn more at millbank.com.